It's a pleasure to be here. This is actually the direct process of devotional service. Bhakti Yoga is also called devotional service because it has an active element. There's a way in which sometimes people talk about devotion. But you'll find throughout the teachings that Srila Prabhupada has put before us that he uses the phrase devotional service. This is very much in line with the teachings of the great Acharyas who come down in the line of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is really the founder of our Sampradaya, called the Gaudiya Sampradaya. Those who follow Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is mentioned in the uh, scriptures to be the most recent incarnation of Krishna himself in the world. Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. He is the origin of everything. And he manifests himself or appears in this world at various intervals with the interest of lifting up those who have devotion and trying to rearrange society by putting those who are against God out of business. And the most recent incarnation of Krishna, according to our scriptures, is called Lord Chaitanya, or sometimes we call him Mahaprabhu or Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Prabhu means master and Maha means great. So when you say Mahaprabhu, you're talking, it's a title which refers specifically in, in our line of, of devotional service to Lord Chaitanya, who appeared uh, about 500 years ago in India, in West Bengal. And in his childhood, he distinguished himself as an unusually great scholar. He had followers even when he was a, a child who wanted to come and learn from him because his uh, scholarship was so profound that even his teacher, Gangadas, was amazed with the abilities of this young man. The pinnacle of his uh, scholarship was manifested in his hometown called Navadvip. When, at the time, the greatest scholar of India came with a entourage to Navadvip to debate against the scholars who resided in Navadvip at the time. At that time in history, in West Bengal, which was a seat of learning, Navadvip was known to be the best of all places, where the best scholars would congregate. Nowadays, when you bring up the name of an Ivy League school, for instance, which one would you bring up as being prominent? Harvard, yeah. If you say Harvard anywhere in the world, people would say, oh, you went to Harvard? You know, you must be smart. So Navadweep was like that. If someone said Navadweep, then you felt that, oh yes, they come from the, the seat of learning. So there was a scholar, thank you. They give me this to help soften the heart because flowers help to soften the heart. And so in the, in his challenging way, there was a great scholar who would go to various places around India 
and he would set up public debates. And he was extremely expert. His title was the Digvijay Pandit, which really means the person who conquers everyone in all directions. And when the residents of Navadweep, which was the hometown of Chaitanya, heard that he was coming, many of them uh, invented excuses to leave town because they knew if they stayed, they'd have to face him and enter into a public debate. So they pretended that suddenly they'd received a message from a family member or something like that where they had to leave town. However, when the Digvijay came into Navadweep, Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is Krishna himself, but he was acting as a young man in Navadweep, a young scholar, arranged that he would meet this Digvijay. And he did it in dramatic fashion. It happened on the bank of the Ganges. And it was a scene that the Digvijay Pandit was attracted to because when he came in with his entourage, he had elephants, he had followers, because everywhere he went, people were cheering him on to defeat others. He saw Nimai Pandit, who's the name of Lord Chaitanya when he was a young man, uh, sitting on the bank of the Ganges, surrounded by his young students. And he noticed, first of all, that he, that he was very beautiful. That is, that Nimai was extremely beautiful. Uh, the, the personality of God is attractive in all ways. And the descriptions of Chaitanya, when he was young, uh, include descriptions of how when he would walk down the streets of Navadweep with his uh, cloth tied in a very stylish way. He, had, he came from a Brahminical family, so he had a, a special thread uh, which was draped across his shoulders designating his, his uh, birth in a very high family. And his body was perfectly proportioned, so much uh, beauty that when people would see him, their heads would automatically turn. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but if somebody uh, comes into the room or walks past you, sometimes they're so attractive that you'll notice that everybody looks. And there's the kind of opulence that you might find in various uh, areas. Sometimes people, they may not have beauty, but they may have great wealth. Like who's the richest person you can think of? right now. Bill Gates. So if Bill Gates came in right now, in fact he's sitting right back there, you'd all turn around and, and look, you might nudge the person next to you and say, is that Bill Gates? Um, other people might come in and sit down and you won't even notice or, or mention, but because Bill Gates is known to, he's famous among other things for having lots of money. So that's something that's attractive to people. And if somebody's greatly learned, who's the smartest person you can think of? Or famous for being learned? That one's a little harder. Einstein. If Einstein came in, you'd really turn your head. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are natural opulences that people uh, have in this world that are attractive. So the idea of the personality of God is called Bhagavan. Bhagavan means the one who has all of these opulences in full. So if you could imagine 
a personality who has all of the things, features that we consider to be attractive, completely in full, then you're imagining the Supreme Personality of Godhead. There are descriptions throughout the, the Vedic scriptures, for instance, in the Upanishads. The Shish Upanishad begins with the invocation, Om Purnam Madak Purnamidam Purnam Purnam Udachite Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vishishite. In essence, this verse is saying God is completely perfect. There's not one thing out of place, and everything that comes from Him is also perfect. So, Nimai was like this. Uh, utterly attractive in all of his features. Just the way he would sit, the way he would speak, uh, everything about him was uh, attention-grabbing. So when the Digvijay came into Navadvip with this spirit that I'm going to conquer this town and I'll be even more famous when I leave. He then approached the city and he saw Nimai Pandit surrounded by his students and he was a little taken aback, even though he felt infallible because he had a benediction from the goddess Saraswati, the goddess of learning, that she would bless his tongue whenever he would debate, so he could hardly lose. So he had a high level of confidence, but somehow or other in the presence of Nimai Pandit, he felt that wane just a bit, because in the presence of a stronger personality, one's own opulences tend to be eclipsed. So he felt that. Nonetheless, with his confidence, he then engaged in a conversation with Nimai Pandit, who encouraged him and told him, why don't you uh, compose some poetry and speak it? And the Digvijay was so expert that he then composed a hundred verses just on the spot, Sanskrit verses, and then spoke them like the blowing wind. In other words, he did it very quickly and right from the top of his head. Now this may sound fantastical, doesn't it? That someone would be able to do that? I don't know if we'd be able to find someone here in New York City that could do that. But recently, when one of our teachers at ISV, uh, Radhika Raman Prabhu, who's a professor at, in uh, religious studies came uh, and was giving a seminar at ISV. He told us about one of his professors who was an elderly Indian man who had studied Sanskrit his whole life and who had such an ability. In fact, he displayed it when he had written 50 or 100 original verses glorifying Srila Prabhupada. And he had done it within a couple of days, just from uh, his acumen in composing Sanskrit verses. So Radhika Raman was reminding us that actually in bygone eras, people had the wherewithal to do such things. Nonetheless, the ability of this Digvijay was beyond compare anywhere. And so he had displayed this learning in front of Nimai Pandit and all of Nimai Pandit's students. And it was at the encouragement of Nimai. And then Nimai Pandit, a youngster, a beginning student in many of the sciences of grammar and Sanskrit and poetry and so forth said, 
well, why don't we look at this a little more carefully and look at the embellishments or the good features of your poetry and let's also look at the faults. And when Digvijay heard this, he felt disturbed. So who are you to mention any faults? There are no faults in my poetry, which is normally true. The next feat performed by Nimai astounded the pundit because Nimai then, out of the hundred poems or verses that the Digvijay had written on the spot and recited, not that he wrote them, but mentally he created them and then presented them, Nimai picked out two and he recited them back to the Digvijay. And the Digvijay said, well, how did you remember these? This is uh, wholly uncommon that you'd be able to, anyone would be able to do this. And Nimai was playing a humble role at that time. He said, some people are erudite scholars beyond compare, like yourself. I just happen to have this one little talent that I can remember things, that's all. However, at that point, Nimai began to deconstruct the verses that he had picked out of the string of verses that the pundit had composed. And he began to uh, show the, the literary ornaments, and then he began to bring out the faults. And at that time, the Digvijay pundit, although he wanted to respond, had nothing to say. The students of Nimai at that time began to, to laugh. But Nimai pundit told them, don't laugh. This is a great personality. And that night when the Digvijay pundit had gone to sleep in great anxiety, thinking, how is it that my goddess Saraswati had withheld her powers from me and I wasn't able to say anything. And not only that, I had made mistakes. She has forsaken me. She herself re revealed herself to the Digvijay in a dream and said, actually, both of us were in the presence of my master, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And she informed him that actually Nimai Pandit is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And the Digvijay Pandit then secretly came back the next day and took shelter of Nimai Pandit, understanding his preeminent position as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So Nimai, uh, or Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in his childhood, displayed such opulences. And then after he met his spiritual master, Srila Ishvara Puri, uh, in Gaya, after Nimai had gone there to perform a shraddha, or, or ceremonial offerings to his departed father, he met his guru, Srila Ishvara Puri. He showed by example, and this is something that uh, Krishna does himself when he comes to the world, he accepts a spiritual master to show what is the actual process for making advancement spiritually. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu did the same thing. And when he came back from, from this distant city, Gaya, after, after having taken initiation from his guru, and he came back into his town of Navadweep, people noticed that he was very different. He was no longer a puffed up scholar as he had been in his youth, but now he was uh, a humble servant to all the devotees there in Navadvip. And he, he was also 
uh, very much fixed on remembering Krishna and chanting Krishna's names. He then later uh, from Navadvip took sannyas. He moved to Jagannath Puri. He traveled to South India. And in his sojourn, 48 years in the world, taught the uh, practice of bhakti yoga, especially through his disciples, the six Goswamis and others, who codified all the teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and brought them out to the world. Thus began what is called the Gaudiya Sampradaya, coming from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Those who want to know more about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu can study the book, The Teachings of Lord Chaitanya. And this is presented by uh, the founder Acharya, uh, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. It's almost like a PhD thesis paper. It covers the entire life of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and all of his philosophy from beginning to end, from the most primary teachings that he gave to the most esoteric and detailed of instructions that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gave. And those who would like to uh, take up the practice of spiritual life will do well to study what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu taught because it's very much in line with the Vedic teachings of coming down and summarized through the Bhagavad Gita. And it's very practical for people of today, the system that he taught. So this movement is based on the teachings of Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, which are very much in line with the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam. And now I'll just say a, a couple, give a couple of points from the Bhagavad Gita. One is that it's very rare for people to take to spiritual life. Krishna says this himself at the outset of the seventh chapter of the, the Gita, where he says, Manushanam sahasreshu kashchid yatati siddhaye yatatamapi siddhanam kashchid mambeti tattvataha. This means that out of all the people in the world, there are very few that are interested in spiritual life. And of those that are interested in spiritual life, there are fewer still that take it seriously enough to come into the teachings that bring one to an understanding of the personality of Godhead and the actual science of Krishna consciousness. So those of you who are interested in Krishna consciousness and who are studying it are very rare. And it's mentioned throughout the, the teachings of Lord Chaitanya and his disciples that there are various levels of consciousness. Living entities are what animate this world. Dead matter is just that, it's dead. But the world is animated by the conscious living being. However, conscious living beings are in various states of consciousness. First of all, there is what's called covered consciousness, and this would include plants. Plants are actually alive, and you can notice this by the way they uh, reproduce themselves, they grow, they produce, produce offspring, and they're actually pretty smart. If you've ever noticed, for instance, a jasmine vine, jasmine vines find their way <laughs> throughout the yard, at least in my yard, they grab onto things, they hold on, they grow up, and they have some impetus. But the consciousness is extremely covered, would you agree? In plants? Yes. Is that a yes? Yes. yes. 
Okay. And above covered consciousness, there's contracted consciousness. Contracted, those in contracted consciousness would include uh, most animals. Animals have feelings. They cry for their young if they're taken away. They try to vigorously defend themselves in various circumstances. And you could notice that uh, if you look at them, especially some of the higher animals, they're looking right back at you, wondering why, they're, why you're looking at them. And there's an awareness that's developing. However, they're not contemplating uh, the subtlety of the philosophy of a chinta beta beta tattva. Nor are they aware when they walk through the city of New York what telephone lines are for, especially dogs, or they're not aware of what fire hydrants are actually for. <laughs> they, they have their own uh, basic idea of how to live. And this is uh, the way that the soul expresses itself through uh, a body that's contracted or has contracted consciousness. Above those who have contracted consciousness, there are those that have what is called budding consciousness. That means the human form of life. This is the greatest of all opportunities as is announced through the, the Vedic scriptures. As an example, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, it is said, Labvam sudulabhibam bahu sambhavante manushamartidam anitama pihadhira and this verse from the Bhagavatam says, it's very rare to get a human form of life. Labbam sudulabam idam bahusambhavante. And that you get it by winning a kind of lottery of the species after many, many births. Bahusambhavante means after taking many, many births in the, in the different species, you might land in a human body. So if there's anything troubling you today, you can uh, feel happy instead because you won the lottery of the species and you have a human body. Do you feel happy? Yes. But not very much? <laughs> okay. You might consider this. There are other verses. Bhagavatam also says, Nridehaṁ adhyam sulabham sadulabham lavam sukalpam gurukarnadaram compares the human body to a boat which is specifically designed to cross over the ocean of birth and death. Did you ever think of your body as a boat? Sir, what is your name? Yes. Yes? yes? What is your name? Rashika. Rashishwar. Rasheshwar Mukunda Prabhu. Uh, let the record show that Rasheshwar Mukunda Prabhu has considered that the body is like a boat. It can cross over the material nature. Thank you. So, uh, when one comes to the human form of life, it is known that one has budding consciousness. And when you see spring come, or the approach of spring, you, you'll may, you may notice uh, that the trees are budding, various plants are budding, and it means that there's possibility. Because after the bud appears, then you know something else good is coming, right? Say yes. Yes. 
So human life is full of possibilities. We have opportunity in human life to further expand our consciousness beyond the budding stage. We're also given the choice in human life to do as we please, which can be a little dangerous. Would you agree with me on that? Yes. Yeah, so oftentimes uh, people feel a little confounded by their freedom and they think, why, why do I have this burden of having free choice? So, the next level of consciousness is called blossoming. Blossoming consciousness means humans with sadhana. Sadhana means a spiritual practice, a regular spiritual practice that one can perform. And when one does perform this, then the budding stage turns into the flowering stage. And, and one's potential as a human becomes fully manifest. Personally, I find this uh, not only fascinating, but very encouraging. It means human plus practice, spiritual practice, means you can reach your highest potential very easily. So I was saying that sadhana means the spiritual practice. Sadhya, which is related to the same word, means the goal of the practice. And the person who's practicing is called a sadhu, a sadhu. There's the sadhu, say sadhu. sadhu. Then there's the sadhya, which means the goal. And there's sadhana, which means the practice to reach the goal. Say sadhana. sadhana. So sadhana is a very soft, sweet word, isn't it? Say it again. Sadhana. And if you're lucky enough to get some sadhana to reach the sadhya, and you become a sadhu, then your life becomes fully auspicious and full of possibilities to blossom. So the, the basic sadhana or practice that Chaitanya taught was that God's names are all powerful. There are also different categories of names and there's a science one can study. But the essence of it is that God and His name are the same. The same powers that God has and you might imagine that they're unlimited, right? I mean, the very definition of, of God, not a God, but the God, is that He has unlimited powers. And according to our definition, He's full of mercy also. So there's a kind of compassionate energy and all-powerfulness that comes from God and naturally emanates from Him and that is fully available to each human being through the sadhana of repeating his names. This is the doctrine of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in essence, which was taught to him by his guru, Srila Ishvara Puri, who pointed out to him in the compass of Vedic scriptures, there's an emphasis that in the age of Kali Yuga, the main process for attaining blossoming consciousness is to repeat the names of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And as an example, there's a mantra given in the Kali Santarun Upanishad. And you'll never guess what the mantra is. And it's the most recommended mantra for this age, which is a combination of God's names. 
Can anybody guess what it might be? Do you know how it goes? Let's hear. Yes, that's it. And there are two ways, at least, to practice the sadhana of repeating the names of God. And one might take up this mantra as the primary mantra. And one of the ways is through japa. Japa means a silent kind of prayer, or just audible to the chanter, so that one can hear the names of God and actually speak them consciously and remember that this is a direct connection that one's making through repeating the names of the Lord. So when one's uh, saying the names like this, uh, one might sit or stand and then repeat them like this. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And uh, one who chants the names like that and listens very carefully is performing japa. So anyone can take up the, the practice of japa and there's, there's no initiation necessary in order to start this process of japa. Anyone can take advantage of it as a home practice. And then there's another kind of repetition of the names of the Supreme Personality of Godhead through what's called samkirtan, which means that a group of people sit together, one person sings out the names or the mantra, which is a com combination of names of the Lord, and then the audience listens and then repeats back. So it would go something like this. All sing and then you sing back. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Got to listen first. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna. Perfect. So that would be uh, an example of Sankirtan, chanting together with others. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu taught these two methods of sadhana through which one can bring one's budding consciousness to the flowering stage. And anyone who wants to learn how to do this can uh, inquire from somebody who's already doing it and get set up with a home practice. We recommend a couple of things in order to make your home practice of chanting successful. One is what's called Sankhya Purvaka. And it means to uh, chant a, f a minimum number of mantras every day, especially in Japa. That means that the mind is uh, fickle and might accept something, a vow one day, and then give it up the next. So it's helpful if one decides that I'll chant a fixed number of mantras every day and I'll stick to it no matter what. And in which case, one's taking the mantra like medicine. And I'll give you the example that's given by the chief disciple of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the manner of chanting Japa. He said, did Rupa Goswami, that 
when you get a disease called jaundice, there's a way in which the curative sugarcane juice, which is normally sweet, tastes terrible. Anyone had jaundice? Punch it. Punch, you've had it, right? No? We know people have had it, he's had it. And sugarcane juice is one of the most ambrosial beverages that you can get on the planet. In my younger years, I, I could be found in India hanging out by the sugarcane juice, a cart, and uh, throwing back quite a few glasses of sugarcane juice on a hot day, mixed with a little ginger and, and lime. Uh, if it's a little cool on a hot day, it's ambrosia. Anyone? Yes, thank you very much. We're kindred souls. <laughs> However, if you have jaundice, there's a problem with that because although it's a curative and although it tastes like ambrosia, when you have jaundice, it tastes terrible. It tastes so bad that it makes you want to vomit. So Rupa Goswami says, when you start the practice of japa, although the name of the Supreme Personality of God is the sweetest thing that you'll ever recite in your life. And although all the powers of the Supreme Personality of God are present within His name, and the utterance of His name puts us in direct communion with the Supreme Personality of Godhead, there's a way in which when I have a disease, which is called avidya, say the name of the disease. Avidya, avidya means ignorance. It's, it's a predilection towards ignoring the Supreme Personality of God and, and being absorbed in dull matter in, as a replacement. This is uh, called avidya. And when I become addicted to dull matter, to the exclusion of, this, of being attracted to the Supreme Personality of God, this is a kind of an affliction. And it's considered to be an unnatural condition of life and a diseased condition of life the prescription for overcoming it, for clearing up that disease, is to chant the holy names. Now the problem is, when I go to chant, when I'm diseased, it tastes terrible. I don't taste anything sweet. In fact, my mind tells me that I'd rather do anything else but this. Is there any other replacement for this, please? However, one has to continue taking the sugarcane juice in order to overcome jaundice, and one has to continue the chanting of the names of God in order to overcome the disease of avidya. So Rupa Goswami says that the beginning of your sadhana, or practice of chanting the names of the Lord, begins with a fixed number of mantras every day. And if you can do this, you're in. And you can start this at home by taking a little time out and deliberately turning off everything else around you and focusing your attention exclusively on hearing and repeating this mantra, which is a divine mantra, and just listening. And let it have its medicinal effect. And if you can do that every day, a fixed number of times, then you'll start to notice that the medicine will have its effect and you'll be able to, to taste the sweetness of the name. One of the preliminary stages 
of recovery that one might notice while chanting Japa and listening carefully to the name is that the sound of the mantra, the Hare Krishna mantra, starts to sound interesting and unique. Srila Prabhupada mentions this in his purport in the Sri Chaitanya Charnamrita. And he says that one may perceive the mantra as a sound that one's never heard before in this world. That is a preliminary sign that one's making advancement in recovering from the disease of avidya. And the word mantra means that the mind is able to transcend its normal mundane conditioning and come to a higher level by the power of the mantra. And I'll give you a scientific example of how this works. There's a principle in science called acoustic resonance. Scientists? Anyone? Any acoustical engineers in, in the room? Mataji, are you raising your hand? No? If I take two tuning forks and I put them before you, and I strike one of the tuning forks with a rubber mallet, the second tuning fork, although not directly in contact with the first one, will then start to vibrate at the same level as the other one. Have you ever seen this done? So acoustic resonance means that the first tuning fork is putting out a spectrum of sound vibration and the second one is resonating or it has a potential to vibrate at the same level and it picks up the energy from the other tuning fork and it begins to vibrate itself at the same rate. Everything in this world, according to the theory of acoustic resonance, has a level at which it will resonate with certain kinds of sound. Now, we have a dual existence in this world. Part of it, our existence relates to our gross material body and our subtle body, our psychological body. These are both considered material. We also have our second existence, which is our real existence, which is our spiritual existence, which means that we are a spirit living within a material body. However, we still have to contend with the physical and mental body. Correct? Please say yes. yes. When you chant a divine mantra, the spectrum of sound that comes from the mantra, Hare Krishna, especially resonates with our spiritual self, our Atma. And it unleashes the full potency of our spiritual self and our spiritual existence. It resonates at that level. There's a principle in this description of acoustic resonance, which is called excitation, which means that when you introduce energy from one entity to another, and the other entity is able to rise to a higher level because of the introduction of that energy, this is called excitation. So the mantra brings this principle that when you chant the mantra, it resonates, it brings a higher energy, and it brings you to a higher level of potential. Through the mantra, you're able to reach a higher vibration through which you gain, in a preliminary way, two benefits. 
One is called Vidya. And the other is called Vairagya. And these two benefits are necessary to progress in spiritual life. Vidya means you get a clearer idea of your real identity beyond just your existence as a physical body. And vairagya means the wherewithal to give up bad habits, which are normally impossible to give up. In order to, have, to do that, one has to have a higher perspective. And the mantra and the vibration of the mantra gives one a higher perspective in order that one can detach oneself from all things that are cumbersome, that hold one back from spiritual progress. This is normally very hard to do because people try to give up habits all the time and they end up going back to them within a few months or a few years. Unless one has outside help, it's very difficult to do. However, the mantra, through excitation, introduces this level of resonance that augments our spiritual side, gives us the benefits of knowledge and detachment, and then one can be steady in the practice of spiritual life. Therefore, this method of practice advocated by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is highly effective and anyone can take to it in any part of the world. It doesn't require that one come from any particular culture or live in any particular place. It simply requires that one be dedicated to the repetition of the mantra and give one's attention to it on a regular daily basis. Does this seem possible or plausible? Yes. Three people said yes. yes. Okay, half of you said yes. yes. All right, okay. So uh, this is a, a, a basic presentation which Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would approve of because we've heard through his uh, disciples that this is the, an authorized means through which anyone can take to the practice of spiritual life and it's what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his disciples advocated. So we're carrying that same message forward, advocating for everyone here in New York City to try this. And now we'll take some reflections or questions. Yes. Can somebody to either hand her a microphone or please tell me what she's saying? Because what's the number of times you're supposed to recite the mantra? Hmm. It's up to your preference, but main point is pick a number that is above zero. <laughs> Oftentimes, if you're just starting, if you pick a smaller number that you know you can do. It's more effective to be consistent than it is to do a, lot, a high number at first. And just the intentionality of, of taking time every day to create a sacred space, like in your home, if you can find a place where you can sit without being disturbed. And also, this is something everybody can try, is turn off everything that has a potential of disturbing you. How many things do you have right now, now in your life, in your home, that could potentially disturb you from your meditation? You're smiling. You tell me a few things. Okay, there's a phone. Anybody here have a phone? I mean, when the phones first came out, there was a store down in Los Angeles called Roger Siegel. They used to be cutting-edge styles and sell all kinds of, you know, new gadgets and things like that. They, cell phones was, uh, car phones was the first thing that came out. And they were, um, they were so prestigious 
that they sold at Roger Siegel's a, what was called a car phony. As in phony means not real. It was a fake car phone. So people could drive around. This literally happened. And pretend they were on the phone when they were driving their car just so people would look at them and go, yeah, I got a phone. <laughs> but now everyone has one. So phones are definitely uh, potential interrupters. So what would it feel like, do you suppose, to turn your phone off? Does anybody have any idea? What, what does it feel like just to turn your phone off completely? What, what if you gave it to somebody for like two days and said, don't give it back? How would you feel then? You go through withdrawals, you know, everything. <laughs> How long can I last? So at least do it for a few minutes every day. Take time to shut off the phone and any other avenue. People, it, it's good for you. It, it, you're telling yourself, I'm worth this, and there's a higher level I'm working on, on myself. So create that space for yourself every day. And then sit down, repeat the mantra very carefully with attention. If you can do it from the heart, like you're praying to God, uh, then it'll have a powerful effect. So I, I recommend that you do at least 27 mantras a day to start with. That would take you about maybe two minutes. And try it for 21 days. Is that all right? Or is that too many? What's that? That's the perfect place to do it. Shelter is what we're all looking for. Yeah, you can do it in a shelter. It's no problem. Yeah. In fact, you might find other people who are interested. You know, they can chant with you. But find a, find a corner of the shelter, and you can repeat the mantra, just so you can hear it. And you'll see that it gives you... Uh, a sense of communion with the Supreme. Other questions? Are a lot of these facts in the TV, right? TV? They still have TVs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I don't know who thought of this, but it wasn't a great idea to put TVs everywhere. On the airplane, some airplanes, they're getting rid of them now, but they put them behind every seat. And somebody thought, why don't we put one on the gas station, on the gas pumps? And then why don't we put them in the uh, grocery stores? Have you seen that? You go into the grocery store, there's a TV screen going. This is not a good idea, in my humble opinion. It's not a great idea. And if you have them everywhere else, why keep one at home? It's, it, you could try this and just not, not have a television. Um, there was a movement for a while called Cut the Cord. So if you just get some garden shears, make sure it's not plugged in, and you cut the cord, it'll take you a long time to get a new plug. And see what happens. Yeah, TV. What else? Uh, other questions or, or reflections? We only have a couple minutes left. Yes, Prabhu. Here, here's a microphone. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to share that the way you described the different types of consciousness was very nice. Uh, I haven't heard it before. Is it from some scripture? Or? Yes, it's from the Jaiva Dharma, written by Bhakti Thakur. And in, therein, Bhakti Thakur gives 
uh, uh, you know, a very scientific review and detailed report of, of the teachings of Lord Chaitanya, very under, understandable and palatable way. So it's there. So uh, anyone who's interested in taking up a home practice of this japa, uh, now it's time for shadam, right? Is that right? So anyone who would like uh, some, to start their home practice of chanting japa, then I'm going to stay here for another few minutes, and we can meet separately, and I can... Uh, tell you a few more things about getting started with your japa. Everybody else who already has their own home practice or they're so hungry they couldn't even think about uh, chanting, uh, prasadam will be served in the uh, restaurant downstairs. And for anybody else who, who wants to talk about japa or talk about getting started in your practice, you can see me right over here. And I'll just take a few extra minutes, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, to answer questions and give you a little more detailed instruction about uh, beginning the, the, the practice of devotional service to chanting Hare Krishna. And I thank you very much for your kind attention. We thank everybody else who joined us online from various parts of the world. And uh, I hope you have a pleasant rest of your evening. Hare Krishna. Not to the arm, Marman. Not to the arm, Marman. Hey, not to the arm, Marman. Not to the arm, Marman. Not to the arm, Marman. Not to the arm, Marman.